I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. And I'm Lori. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, Isaiah 58 to 66. And we have our friend Lori with us. She works with the church and she is in charge of helping to train the Seminary Institute teachers globally. So it's really valuable to have her with us today. Thank you so much. I, I guess her, her bigger qualifications might be that she loves the Lord and she's a connoisseur of chocolate milk. Apparently. There you go. So, Lori Newbold, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you join us today. And as we get ready to jump into our fifth episode of Isaiah, which to us is a real treat, uh, what, what would you say to somebody who out there might be saying, ah, I've, we've done a lot of Isaiah, I'm ready to move on? What yeah. would you say? No, that's a, that's a great question. Um, one of the ways that I've approached, I've, I've told both of them in this experience, I am not your Isaiah scholar, but I do love Jesus Christ, and I have uh, gotten better as time has gone out finding him. So to me, what I'd say about Isaiah is what Nephi said. Uh, to kind of start in 2 Nephi chapter 11, um, he has this really sweet blip in, in the verse of how he, in verse 2, uh, describes, he says, Now I, I, Nephi, write more of the words of Isaiah, for my soul delighteth in his words. And I can tell you there's been times in my life I wouldn't have said that because I felt like it was really hard. <laughs> but uh, I stuck with it because I do think that the language and all that can be tough. So if you struggled, that's okay. I actually think you're really normal. Um, but this next line to me is, is really significant. I will liken his words unto my people, and I will send them forth unto all my children, for verily he saw my Redeemer, even as I have seen him. And one of the questions that I've asked myself is, um, how did studying the words of Isaiah help Nephi bear testimony that Jesus Christ is my Redeemer? Um, there's another spot at the end of Second Nephi, Nephi in verse thirty in thirty three verse six where he says, "I glory in my Jesus." And sometimes in our conversation we talk about the Redeemer or the Savior, and I think there's a lot of power as you seek to not talk about the, which is a good place to start. But he wants to be, he wants us to possess him, my Savior, my Redeemer, and I I can just witness and. Hope that maybe we'll talk about some of that day as we kind of go through. You'll be able to see Jesus Christ in a way that helps you be even more possessive of him um, as that part of it. So I just love my Redeemer, uh, and I witnessed that as I started, I hope that's okay, but I just want you to know that I know that Jesus Christ is my Savior. He's my friend. He's my physician, and um, and uh, I, I just pray that that can be you know, part of what we do today because I love that Nephi does it so well and teaches us so well. <laughs> I love, Lori, the way you've introduced this. Just to remind ourselves, why are we reading ancient prophets? It's for this reason that we can know Jesus, that he is our Redeemer, my Redeemer, my Savior. And I bear witness, like Lori has, I know that Jesus is my Redeemer. I have felt his saving power in my life. Which, by the way, we, we do this with, with our hymn book you'd even mentioned earlier. What a difference it would make if our song, our beloved hymn number 136 was, 
I know that the Redeemer lives, it, it would be less powerful than how we sing it. I know that my Redeemer lives. So basically using that as an overlay as we jump into chapter 58, the, the, the learning technique here is look for your Redeemer on every page, in every part of these chapters. And by the way, the Lord doesn't have any problem at all using the possessive pronouns when referring to us. He refers to us as his people, my people. And so it's this reflexive uh, relationship that we're uh, giving in return of making him our Redeemer. It's pretty, pretty uh, powerful. So, should we jump in? Chapter 58? A lot to talk about. Uh, if, you were to, if you were to summarize chapter 58 in, in a quick overview setting, it's going to cover two um, topics of what we consider to be our, our religion today is fasting and Sabbath observance. But it comes to us through the lenses of Isaiah, and he's going to approach it in such a beautiful way and make these – the he's going to set up these topics in such a way that we can see them more clearly from heaven's perspective. What is fasting all about? And what is the Sabbath observance all about from, from heaven's perspective? It's beautiful. So let's jump in. Chapter 58, verse 1 starts, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgressions, or transgression, and the house of Jacob their sins. Did you notice all four of those verbs? Cry, spare not, lift up, and show. Hmm, that sounds like what a prophet is supposed to do. That sounds like what a leader in, in the church and kingdom of God is supposed to do. That sounds like what a parent or a true friend should do, is cry aloud, spare not, lift up the voice, and show my people. Um, what is it that they were showing them? Verse 2, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. Well, it's helped me, especially with Isaiah, is the footnotes. So that very first one, they do all the rituals but lack something yet. Oh, that's what he means, because it seems like seeking me daily would be a positive thing, and then he explains a little language-wise what that is, so. Yeah, and he's just trying to encourage people to update their practices and be a little more grounded in why they should be fasting. Uh, let's remind our, all of ourselves what fasting is, the word itself, fast. Like, if you talk about a fast runner, somebody who's quick or strong, and fast does mean strong. Like, if you have a fastener to fasten a board into a wall, you're going to make it stick and hold firm. So to fast means to get strong, to get stronger in the Lord. And we see the things that they have been doing, like in verse 3, 4, and 5, they've been fasting, but for the wrong reasons. Like verse 4, ye fast for strife and debate and to smite with the fist of wickedness. Seems strange. Like fasting's hard already, but I can't imagine like, I'm going to fast just so I can have more debate with people and to get into fisticuffs. And apparently, people were having some kind of conflict or debate or fights around the purpose of fasting, that Isaiah has got to correct them. And he finally tells us in verse 7, the purpose of fasting, uh, verse 6 and 7, is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, 
to undo the heavy burdens and to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke? Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? When thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh? Very, very powerful. And if we think about fasting today, we understand those purposes. But in Isaiah's day, apparently, people had misunderstood or at some point forgotten why they should be fasting. And they made it a point of conflict instead of the intention is to liberate people, to help people experience God's liberty. So if you look at this from a, from a step back perspective, you have the godly, and then you have the, uh, let's just say, the worldly ways of doing things. So you'll notice how this whole discussion of fasting started. You're, you're doing the right things, but it's kind of like you're just going through the motions. You're, you may not be doing them for the right reason. And you could plug this into all kinds of concepts. Uh, sorrow. There's godly sorrow, and then there's worldly sorrow. You, you can go through the motions of being sad because of things that have happened or that you've done wrong, but it may or may not lead you to become more like the Savior through the process. It's godly sorrow that does that. Same thing with fasting. You can do all of the elements, the physical elements of a fast, and check all of the boxes from a world's perspective of, oh, yep, that's a fast, but not have it actually help connect you with, with heaven anymore or bring you closer to God. So, as, as we've said, if you were to mark off verse 3 through 5, that's a worldly fast. Th those are things you're going through the motions, you're, you're denying yourself of the food and the water, but it's not for the right reasons, and so it's probably not going to help you in the end. But if you do 6 through 12, that's a heavenly, a, a godly approach to fasting, and it unlocks all kinds of power in that fast for us to, to deal thy bread on the hungry, bring the poor that are cast out to thy, of thy house, clothing the naked, all of these things that we covenanted to do at baptism. And if I can make a comment to that, I, um, I am all in for this for sure. I also love, sometimes I think in gospel principles, President Oaks talk on good, better, best. So, um, if you're fasting surely for obedience, it's a good reason to fast. You know you're supposed to, it's fast Sunday, because as we talked about, you mentioned in verse 4, the strife and debate, and, and again, footnotes. P.S. This is how I start Isaiah. I start with the footnotes, and I highlight every footnote that gives me the meaning in the uh, in the biblical language or in other words or any JST, because that helps clarify for me. So just that's a fun fact of my learning experience. So, um, so in four, it, it even mentions fasting without spiritual motivation only engenders discomfort and irritability. I think that that was the first, I don't know, 20 years of my fasting experience, probably growing up. And I actually think it's really normal. And I, if you do that, that, that's okay. What I see is an invitation for the Lord here to take his people um, from good to better and then from better to best when it comes to fasting. And he says, so can I tell you why? Can I tell you what it will do for you? And I love, I love in verse six, um, <laughs> it's hard for me to not be a little emotional about these verses because I've seen the power in my own life to loose the bands of wickedness. 
well, what wickedness do I have in my life that is tight on me? Um, to, undo, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke. When I think about, when I put those phrases in my own life, um, I, can, I can witness that, that fasting has, um, because it focuses my thoughts to Jesus Christ, and because he is the, he's the, I mean, think about it. When you use the phrase, let the oppressed go free, that is what Jesus Christ does. He frees the oppressed. That's why he's a redeemer. That's where that, one of the reasons that title. So it's fun to go through and connect each of these promises with the title of the Savior that makes sense of why this helps us come to him and then also come, why it comes from him because he wants this relationship with us. And he's, to me, fasting's an invitation and can I give you something that will help you know me better and love me more? And um, anyway, I just, there was a, one of my favorite articles on this is by Elder Shane Bowen, and it's in the April 2009 um, Enzyme. Now we look at Leon or whatever. But he, the very first line, what if there were a way to overcome our habits, addictions, and burdens? Well, you had me there <laughs> because yes, right? And then you go through, what if there were a way to gain sufficient confidence in the Lord that you could call down the powers of heaven? What if there were principles you could teach your loved ones that, if applied, would allow them to overcome personal weakness and draw closer to God? And then he lays out Isaiah 58, 6. Proper, and then he says, proper and consistent fasting can help us overcome sins bad habits and addictions. Is there any of us who would not want to be freed from the personal burdens that we carry? So I, anyway, I just, when you look at this too, again, it reminds me of like, well, how am I freed? I'm not freed. Fasting doesn't free me. Jesus Christ frees me. But this takes me to him in my intent and in my heart and in my prayers and, uh, and in a good, better, best way my ability to fast has grown significantly because uh, uh, I think it's one of those like whew, principles, you know. What a powerful example from Elder Bowen, Lori. Thank you for sharing that. It's in my mind. It's it's a way that God has given us to become more like Him. And so I'm like, uh, how is fasting doing that? Stop and think about that for a minute. You take that which is which is heavenly compared to that which is earthly. And you and I are dual-natured beings. There's part of me and part of you that actually was up in heaven, that lived in the royal courts on high, and there's part of me standing here that was not up in heaven, that's part of this earth. So we have this combination of the, the divine attributes of our soul and the earthly attributes of our soul, and those two elements are now together, and they have to learn how to get along in mortal life. And isn't it fascinating that when we fast, it's as if the, the mortal part, the, the physical part of our being, is constantly making physical demands of the spiritual part of our being, and if we're not careful, before long it becomes this kind of relationship where the, the body is saying, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I'm tired, all those things that, that apply to the physical nature, and the spirit 
if we're not careful, can end up being subservient. Isn't it amazing that once a month the Lord gives us this invitation um, to have the scenario of, I'm hungry, and the Spirit be able to say, good, and the body say, what do you mean, feed me? Not yet. <laughs> and by the time that 24 hours is over, you get this kind of a relationship where the Spirit isn't adversarial, it's not saying, I hate you, the flesh is evil, it's bad, it's, no, I like you. I'm going to be with you in the eternities in a, in a resurrected sense, but for here, I need you to know I'm in charge, I'm calling the shots here. Hence the power of this talk from Elder Bowen of freeing the captive, of allowing your, your spirit to rule over that which is, is just the, the earthly and keep it in a proper relationship. And I, to what you're saying, I, um, I think there was a couple of things that you mentioned that kind of stood out to me. One is um, I, I had a, a sister in my 20s who said to me one time, and this was legitimately the first time somebody mentioned it to me, she said, um, every time I get hungry, I pray. And that, is she goes, I pray for whatever I'm fasting for. And that shifted my fasting experience because it was just misery in a lot of ways as a teenager. And, and I don't think I'm alone in saying like, I love food. And it's odd as many like gospel commands have been hard to live in some ways. This is one of, has been one of the hardest for me. And then when she did that for me, I was like, oh yeah. So then I began to pray and I still had hunger pains, but all of a sudden I did have purpose. Um, and I knew I had purpose when I had started, but like this was the, the moment of like a reminder of my purpose and helped me. And I did think often, no, no, Heavenly Father, I really do want this, whatever this is, more than I want food. I also am aware of people who have felt shame because their physical uh, conditions have not allowed them to maybe fast the 24 hour, whatever. But I think if you think about, um, the principles behind fasting more than the actual behavior itself. If you do have to take pills and if you do have to, you know, have a, things, there are still ways to fast. And the question is, where's your heart? And, and what's your purpose? Are you focusing on the Savior? Are you giving an invitation um, to your point of, of somewhat of overcoming the natural man in some way? And then, and then am, I, am I seeking this for what God intends it to be? And these will help, and these blessings can come. No matter what your physical capacity and your space is, you do what you can do, and you will know from God that it is right. I've had different relationships with fasting, and I have felt this move, and I love it now. Not because I don't love food, and it is still physically miserable a lot of days, but I love what um, I know I can testify of what God has done for me, for my family, for people that I've worked with, in every single one of these categories, I have watched him break addiction through fasting. And it's been even food addiction, which is, feels like the cruelest irony. You struggle with food addiction, and the Lord says, I want you to fast more. And you're like, really? This is brutal. But I've seen him do it. I know. It's powerful. So as we now um, get ready for verse 8, through 12, just really quick overview. Remember that in verse 3 through 5, you get the non-example of, of 
how to fast or how not to fast, the worldly way of doing it, then six through seven was the the true fast, what God has ordained. It wasn't the Lord isn't up in heaven saying, what can I do to make them miserable? I know, I'll tell them to fast. It's, it's supposed to be this joyful thing from his perspective, and, and that comes out very clearly in 6 and 7 in contrast to 3 through 5. And then what you get is 8 through 12, you're going to have all of the consequences, the positive outcomes from a good fast. You'll notice that it starts in verse 8 with the word then. You'll see the word then in verse 9. You'll see an if-then in verse 10. The Lord is constantly doing this in Scripture where he'll set up these conditions. If you do this, then this will happen. Well, in this case, he puts it on a silver platter for us and says, look, you have no promise. If you're doing the world kind of fast, these spiritual promises aren't going to flow, but if you do it the way it's described in verse 6 and 7, then all of these things are going to come. So you'll notice verse 8, then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thine health shall spring forth speedily. Thy righteousness shall go before thee, and the glory of the Lord shall be thy re-reward. Then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, here I am. You notice the power of activating your spirit in all of these uh, instances of being able to more fully commune and communicate with heaven. And then verse 10, and if thou draw out thy soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity, and the Lord shall guide thee continually. Now you get introduced to this idea of not just what you're doing for yourself, but taking the fast and turning it into offerings as well to the poor, to the sick, the afflicted, the needy. Um, I've mentioned this before in the past, this insight that I learned from Wayne Dimmock, a dear friend and colleague from the past, where he sees fast offerings as one of those many invitations that the Lord gives us to become more Christ-like. Why? Because fast offering is an opportunity to take some of what we have as rich, give some of it away to the poor to help the poor become a little richer. Jesus, the richest of all, gave everything to us, the poorest of all, to make us become rich with him, a joint heir. So next time, next time Fast Sunday comes around and you're debating, should I give a fast offering, brothers and sisters, it's not about the money. It's about an invitation for you to become a little bit more like the Savior. Give up a little bit of what you've been given from heaven to help those who are in need fill of God's love, to fill a hug from heaven, so to speak, and, and become a little richer. It's a powerful invitation. Can I, I think that is a beautiful description of that. Um, I've heard and I've, I've had, there's many different talks or opinions about how much a fast offering should be. And um, I, I like what you said, like, I, I don't know, <laughs> right? There's, I've heard everything from, well, I'm not even telling you what I've heard because I can't back any of it up with like what God has said other than if, if it's an offering, then, then I get to sit down with the Lord and say, what can I offer? 
And one of my favorite balancing principles in this, because again, even for some of you, those those offerings will will fluctuate depending on your financial situation of how many kids are at home or um, how many, you know, what stage of jobs or I mean, there's just so much uh, space in there. And one of my most favorite principles in this moment, which carries across many, is actually in Mosiah 4. Um, this is King Benjamin's address. And he says in verse 24, again, I say unto the poor, ye who have not and yet have sufficient that you may remain from day to day. I mean, all you who deny the beggar because you have not. I would that you say in your hearts that I give not because I have not. But if I had, I would give. And I think at the end of the day, you decide with the Lord what that is as you fast it may change from month to month. It may go at different times. But the reality is, can you think about where you're at and what you can offer to the Lord? And that offering uh, connected with the widow's might, right? All of those offerings, we do that with tithing often. I don't know if we do it with fast offerings as much when we connect that. Because um, to your point, Heavenly Father created money. He knows where all, this is his earth that created gold. He knows where... <laughs> All the money is in the whole entire world. So it's never about money to him, ever. It's always about hearts. And it's about entering into this relationship with the two great commandments. I want to show you, Father, that I love you. And I want to show your children that I love them. And uh, and again, I've seen so many beneficiaries from fast offerings. But I just love the space that no matter where you're at, where's your heart? I give because I have. But even if I didn't have, then I would give. So where are you in that space? And that's the invitation, I think, on your end to decide, what can I give? And what can I do? Because this is about me learning to love and give like the Savior. So I think that's just a fun kind of principle to go with that. The other really fun invitation, as you go through the promises in 8 through 12 that we just talked about, of um, can you see, in fact, maybe can I do this with you really quick? <laughs> with, but with both of you? We're going to practice what we started with. Okay, so in 8 through 12, you see many references to the Lord and Him establishing who He is in the promise. So let me ask you this question. What do you learn about Jesus Christ in verses 8 through 12 that helps you say, He's my Redeemer? And it doesn't have to be 20 minutes. It can just be simple, but what do you... I like the phrase right here in verse 8, the light break forth as the morning. I have felt my life filled with light as I've accepted Jesus in my life, as I have sought his hand in my life, I have felt more light breaking into my life as the morning sun rising. And he is the light of light of the world. It all emanates from him. Which that's a fun title to connect right there, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, just off the, and how many of us have felt darkness? Right. So you're witness of him right there just from that one verse. But it doesn't say that there. So, I mean, like, that's what's cool. You just pulled from what he does to know who he is. Mm -hmm. Awesome. I love it. One of the other amazing things along this line, if you look at verse 9, is how the Lord responds to us. When, when it's, then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, here I am. I love that, that He's modeling for us what he wants us to do with him. When we call to him, he's saying, when you're fasting, when you're doing this appropriately, when you call, I'm here, and I will say, here am I. Well, 
the reverse is an opportunity for me to become more like him when he calls to me, for me not to ignore him or reject him, but for me to respond exactly the way he responds to us and answer with, here am I, Lord, what do you want me to do? I'll do what you want me to do. So, if you were to boil it down to one sentence, you learn what about him? I learn that he listens and he responds and he loves and he's powerful and he wants me to listen, respond, and love. And I'll, I'll share with you mine really quick. One of them, uh, as I went through again thinking about this, was in, in, in verse 8, the glory of the Lord shall be thy rear word. Again, rear word, not my most common term. Looked it up, rear guard, not my most common term, but I get the idea that he comes behind me and supports me. In modern parlance, we'd say he's got your back, he's got your six. Yes. I mean, if Isaiah was talking today, he says, God's got your six, he's got your back. <laughs> Well, I think for me that that space is so significant because I love to think about him going before me and, and um, preparing a way. So when I get to that way, now I need to know that I'm not, uh, he's, he's got me behind and in front. He spaced it and then in the middle, he's going to, I don't know how he does it, but he does it, right? He prepares the way, he walks with me and then he supports me and he's got my back. And I just... I love that witness that comes here of who he is as we read this about fasting. It's about him and that relationship, and, uh, and I just love him, so I'll pause there. So now let's shift into the, the second concept that he addresses here in chapter 58, which is the Sabbath day, and you'll notice how Isaiah does it. He does it with an if-then in two verses. You get the if in verse 13 and the then in verse 14 to start these off. Now, to set the stage, you'll notice it's it kind of comes down to two things, the worldly aspect of my will versus the heavenly aspect of thy will. This is kind of how he, he couches this discussion, and by the way, it applies to every principle of the gospel, not just Sabbath observance, not just fasting, it applies to every principle that you could ever discuss in any gospel setting is, am I going to do what I want to do from a worldly flesh-only perspective, or am I going to do what God wants me to do? So look at how he introduces it in verse 13. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shalt honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words." A three-peat here of thine, thine, thine. My will, where he's speaking to us. We live in a world that, that looks at the weekend and says, huh, Sunday is a day of rest from, from work, but it's a day of my pleasure my delights, my own words, my own pursuits, rather than saying, what would thou have me do? What could I do to focus more on thee for this one day? Look at verse 14, the response is, if we will do this, focus on him and on his will, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth, and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. And with the Lord Jesus Christ as our perfect exemplar, 
he, he shows us, he doesn't just teach the principles, he showed us how to live them. The Sabbath was a delight for him. It wasn't something to be dreaded or something where you, you sit moping around for a day saying, I can't do anything fun today. It's, this is when you're out serving, healing, blessing, ministering to the needs. Jesus is consistently doing that on the Sabbath. And it gets him into some trouble with the, the way that some of the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees of his day interpret the law. But I think he shows a perfect example. This is where you're liberating the captive, setting, setting people free through, through those ministering efforts, which I think is God's will. He sent us down here to learn how to, how to do this. Um, if I can make one thing, too, that's helped me here, um, you know, a couple of years ago, the Brethren had a very strong focus inviting us to improve our Sabbath day worship that um, I have friends and siblings who have little kids, and sometimes the Sabbath does not feel like a delight. It's what am I going to do with them all day, uh, the energy, those types of things. So I really appreciated the comment that you just made about it, we can be out ministering, we can also be in ministering even to our own children and taking opportunities. Um, lots of parents are really busy these days and grandparents, and, and they're busy um, doing all good things for their families, right? You're, we're working a lot. We're, we're running them around to athletics events, all kinds of things. Um, and so sometimes what we forget is the value of just sitting with our children and playing with them. And, uh, and taking walks with them and just en enjoying their energy, which is really hard because parents are usually really tired on Sunday uh, as well. And I think, so if I'm, if I'm honest about this battle, like I, I get the struggle of <laughs> it being that. Um, so one of the verses that's really helped me is actually a cross-reference to Exodus 31. Speak thou unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily my Sabbath ye shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord that doth sanctify you. Again, the Savior is all over in the Old Testament. I love it so much. But this idea, President Nelson focuses heavily on what sign do you want to give to the Lord? And uh, that's, I think, a great question. And maybe you've established some things. Maybe you tried some things back when there was a, a big focus by the church of and all the brethren of saying, seek to make the Sabbath more meaningful. Um, but maybe there's some things that we need to remember around that. So go back to whatever you chose then. You can evaluate with the Lord, what do I need to do now? One of the things that I've loved, if it's, it's sign between me and you, then going back to even Tyler's comment earlier about it's this relationship. So yes, what do I want to give him? But also what does he want to do for me? So if this is a sign that if the Sabbath is a sign of what he wants to do for me, then it shifts my mind of instead of what, what do I need to do to accomplish thy will to him saying, what does he want to give me so that I can accomplish his will? And, and so I love this phrase that you may know that I am the Lord that does sanctify you. So for many years, and I don't remember when this insight came to me, that's been my question. What on the Sabbath day can I do that will allow the Lord to reveal himself as a sanctifier for me? Because he wants, if he wants to sanctify me, and that's one of his purposes of the Sabbath, then, then what activities would invite that? And now I'm no longer doing it because this is what I think you want me to do. 
It's I'm inviting sanctification. How will you cleanse me? How will you purify me? How will you make me kinder or more? Like even ministering, again, there is something about meeting needs, but it's also what changes for me. We all know the warm feeling of serving and that changes something in me. I love people more. I see them differently, whatever lesson that is. But um, for me, one of the keys has been the sacrament. I, uh, covenants feel big sometimes. We make them baptism, uh, temple covenants, and they feel really big and out there. What I can do, <laughs> I can live Sunday to Sunday. Some people are paycheck to paycheck. I live sacrament to sacrament in a really holy way. And one of the ways that I know the Lord will reveal himself to me as a sanctifier is to show up on Sunday and take the sacrament. And when I have thought about what the sacrament is, I can't think of a single thing that would be more important for me to do on Sunday than to get to the sacrament table and, and work through my relationship with him, not just in a repentant way, but there's also a line in... Um, in uh, the hymn, as, as now we take the sacrament, which changed also my experience. I used to think it was just me uh, dumping all my sins and sorrows at the sacrament table. I'm so sorry. I promised to be better. And sometimes I didn't like feel that good about it, except for I knew I needed to be there. But in, in the hymn, as now we take the sacrament, um, there's a line from him that says um, in verse one, our thoughts are turned to thee, thou son of God who lived for us and died on Calvary. Calvary. We contemplate thy lasting grace, thy boundless charity. And as I have sat or prepared for the sacrament on Sunday, I have contemplated how he has showed me grace this week and what charity is demonstrated in my behalf. And every time I see things that I didn't see during the week and every time I see him as a sanctifier. And our relationship has been so beautiful and healing as I've just, if all you can do is make it to the sacrament table in your, in this progress of getting from worldly to godly, that is going to be a beautiful way to honor his Sabbath. And, uh, and anyway, I just love that idea. That's my, that's my question. You come up with your own, but what, what can I do that will allow him to reveal him? He has revealed himself as a sanctifier through my family, as I've sat with him, as I've played with uh, my nieces and nephews, as I've sat with, anyway, he just, I have seen him in so many elements, instead of the list of do's and don'ts that sometimes fills whatever to us, that's, that's the way he wants to show me, and, uh, and he has shown me, and I'm so excited for all he's going to show me with all the life I have left. So now as we turn over to chapter 59, you, you get kind of this, this contrast to what we've been talking about here in 58, it's, it's the opposite. So we're going to go down, and Isaiah is going to focus largely on one of the struggles that we face in this world of ours is the fact that verse 2 says, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. It's not that God's not, not capable of hearing, it's that your sins have separated you so far you're asking the wrong questions, you're, you're seeking the wrong things, and God's not going to respond or grant those petitions. Verse 3, he goes on, for your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue hath muttered perverseness. He, he, he's being a realist here, and, and you see people 
in his day, you see this being fulfilled in Christ's day, and you can see this being fulfilled in our day, you can pretty much pick any period of the history of the earth where he's had a covenant people who have turned away from him to any degree, this is going to start to apply. Look at verse 4, none calleth for justice, nor any pleadeth for truth. Why? Because they put their trust in vanity. Emptiness, things of no value, things that are wrong or false. It's, it's sad, and lies, and they con conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. That conception versus birth, that they conceive mischief, but mischief then develops and bears out iniquity and sin. And then his, his symbolism is so beautiful here in verse 5, they hatch cockatrice eggs, these, these poisonous snake, these viper eggs, and they weave the spider's web. They're, they're weaving spider's web. His, his imagery here of taking a web that is designed to, to trap and capture, kind of like the, the flaxen cords idea, they're weaving spider's webs to use that as their covering, as their clothing. It, there's some beautiful um, irony going on in this verse. And I think to myself today, I, I often get in the mode where I want to share some idea with people or I read something somewhere and I just want to post it out to the world. And I look at this and I ask myself, am I taking the time as the brethren and the church leaders have asked me to, to be much more careful about what I post online? Am I verifying that things are true? Are they lovely? Are they of good report? Or am I spreading misinformation or lies or sensationalism or fear or anger? And I have to ask myself, am I falling into the trap that the people in Isaiah did where it's easy in our fallen nature to spread sensationalism or to share misinformation because it feels good and I didn't want to do the hard work to really verify Am I sharing something that's true, lovely, and of good report? And we hear in Isaiah's record what happens when we, do, when we don't pursue those things that are true, lovely, and good report. It ends up we're, we're, we're poisoning ourselves with things that are not of God, and it ends up leading to death, spiritual and physical. Can I add one question to the ones you just asked? I think those are phenomenal. I love that connection there. And I would ask myself with that, like, will this invite someone to come to Christ? Will they want to know him because of what I've posted? And it doesn't, to what we're seeing, it doesn't have to say his name even, but the idea is will they, and we can, I mean, it's really good to be overt about it, obviously, but will they know him more? And, and, and truth is another word for Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? But I think that even our own self-awareness, because that's, I think, what you're inviting is, and I think that's one of the most important learning skills and discipleship skills that all of us should develop is spiritually self-aware, what am I doing? <laughs> and if, and as I check in with myself before I go to tell somebody else about it, then, then is this going to build faith in Jesus Christ? Because that's what I've covenanted to do. Or check in with other people. I have to say, even recently, I was having a conversation with Tyler about something, and I made a claim. I said something like the word always or never, and Tyler really gently said, are those, is that really always and never the case? And even I, I fall into this trap where as a human, I just want to kind of like paint a black and white picture that we sometimes have to remind ourselves that 
having other voices in our lives of trusted friends and trusted leaders where before we start making claims or sharing ideas, are we sharing what's true, good, valuable, uplifting, that will draw people into more truth and more uh, closer to Jesus. So yeah, checking ourselves and having good friends and leaders checking us as well is really helpful. Well, Isaiah, he, he closes the loop. He, he answers his own questions here with the outcomes. Look at verse 6. Their webs shall not become garments. You can't make covering out of spider's webs. And then he says, neither shall they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. He's saying, you, you can keep trying to cover up using worldly means, but at the end of the day, there's only one covering that truly covers you, and it's this, this kafar, the robe of righteousness, as, as we get in Isaiah, and Nephi picks up on that phrase. That's the covering. It's not the things that the world offers us. It's the covering that God offers us through the sacrifice of his only begotten Son. And by the way, isn't it, isn't it beautifully symbolic that Adam and Eve, when they are found naked in the Garden of Eden, God doesn't cover them with spider's webs. He covers them with a coat of skins, which means an animal had to die in order to cover their nakedness, in order to to make it so they're not vulnerable and exposed. That's the, that's the contrast. Look at verse 8. The way of peace they know not, and there's no judgment in their doing, in their goings. They have made them crooked paths. Whosoever goeth therein shall not know peace. So if you bring it back to 1 Nephi 8, there's only one path. There's only one way that leads to eternal life, and Jesus says, I am the way. And in that same dream, there are lots of forbidden paths and a lot of strange roads, but none of them lead to everlasting peace. Oh, they might be fun for a season, but it'll end. I love how he starts this rebuke. He explains first, right, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. And then he goes into saying, and here's what's going on, but let me remind you first, who I am and what I can do for anyone who's been caught in any of these. And I thought, typically, the Lord's, the Lord's hand is not shortened. Another way of saying that that we might be a little more familiar with in the Book of Mormon is, his arm is stretched out still, or mercy is extended, you know, and that's his arm is extended. And the arm is a symbol of power, right? I mean, that's him saying, I'm reaching out. Um, and so I actually just did a quick search in preparation for this, and, and the word, uh, the phrase stretched out still is used in 2 Nephi and Isaiah. So it, it was just kind of fun to think, and that's it, right? So stretched out, there's one time in Abraham, but it wasn't in connection with his arm for whatever their sin is, and he says that over and over again, can I tell you, even in my loving rebukes, I am able and, and I don't know, for those of you who've been or have seen the picture of the, the Sistine Chapel, um, I have it hanging on my mantle because I, I went there a few years ago, and the Lord just riveted to my eyes where Heavenly Father and Adam are just that scene with them. And if you can see it, God is practically falling out of whatever space he's in to extend himself fully to Adam, just 
wanting to connect. And Adam's finger is like this, right? And I, the Lord said this so clearly to me, so simply, all Adam has to do is this. And he connects immediately with the arm that is stretched out still. And I, I just saw Heavenly Father in the most loving fatherly way. I know you do dumb things, right? I know you do because you're my children and that's what mortality is about. It's about learning. It's about growing. It's why I sent my son, not because I expected you to know how to do it. So I just love that even the beginning of this rebuke and whatever you feel as you read this, you think, oh man, I gotta get better. Yes, and let me start it with, my hand is not shortened. My arm is stretched out, so I will fall out of my heavens as far as I can possibly get. But you have agency, and I have to honor it, and I am honoring it. But will you please, 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 please connect with me? That is the God that I know, and that's the one I see Isaiah testifying of over and over again in this. That's so lovely. And I see this being summed up right here in verses 20 and 21 at the end of the chapter. He says, and the Redeemer, remember, your Redeemer, my Redeemer, shall come to Zion and unto them that turn from transgression. Okay, so we've all made mistakes. Repentance is simply just turning back to God. It's re-aiming to focus on God. And down in verse uh, 21, as for me, this is my covenant or promise with them, saith the Lord, my spirit that is upon thee, my words which I have put into thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of thy mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. So if you think of sacrament, we are given the promise that we will have his spirit to be with us. And that is a promise that we can have for us and our every success of generation if we keep the commandments. So it all ties in. He does, Isaiah does call people out for their wickedness, but he ends with this note of hope, that there's always hope in your Redeemer and my Redeemer. Which, by the way, sorry to jump back a couple of verses here, but he sets the stage for the redeeming power to take, take effect in verse 16 and 17. Notice, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him and his righteousness it sustained him. How? For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and an helmet of salvation upon his head. Hmm, I wonder if Paul, when he sat down to write a letter to the saints in Ephesus, if he thought, what, what analogy can I use to help them understand the need to be endowed in duo in the Greek, to be clothed with power from on high. What analogy could I use? Isaiah chapter 59 is a really good place for Paul to turn for some inspiration in writing his letter when he talks about putting on the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. So now we open up chapter 60 with some words that, once again, those of you who uh, are familiar with Handel's Messiah, you'll recognize these words. And by the way, the librettist, the, the one who wrote the, the words, picked, selected the scriptures for Handel to then write the music, he really liked Isaiah. And you see a lot of Handel's Messiah coming out of the book of Isaiah. Here's another example. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. 
Notice it's not our glory. I'm not generating the light. I'm not producing it. I can only hope to reflect it as he gives it to me. Look at verse 2. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee, and the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. So, did you see what he just did? He started in verse 1 with Christ being the source of light that shines on us, and once I've been taught to walk in the light, then we now go forth into all the world, and what does Jesus do? He gives unto us to be the light of the world, that it's as if we've been granted that light, now we get to reflect it, and in verse 3, it's thy light is going to shine, and they're going to see the brightness of thy rising. He now compares you to Christ. You've, you've become a little bit more like the Savior in verse 3. It's beautiful. When I, I, I love just the idea of the theme of light. I saw so much starting back in 59, 60, 61. If you, if you just look for the word light, I'm going to invite you to do your own search. I'm not even going to tell you the verses. I'm just going to say go do your own search on light and learn what you learn about the light of the world through his offering of light. With what you just said, right, he says in 35, 18, I'm the light where you should hold up. And I think that all of us can relate to the idea that there is a lot of darkness in our world and there's a lot of light and we get to choose which one we focus on. And I have felt the Savior many times to me reminding me in verse 19 because he goes through, right, and he, he, he promises some things that he'll do. Again, even he has mercy, he'll they'll bring joy, but I love 19 and he testifies of a day <laughs> that I can't wait for. But the sun shall be no more thy light by day, because he's the light. We don't need the sun, right? This is a beautiful connection to Revelation 24, 21, sorry. Um, Neither for brightness shall the moon give light unto thee, but the Lord shall be unto thee an everlasting light, and thy God thy glory. And the sun shall go no more down, neither shall the moon withdraw itself, for the Lord shall be thine everlasting light. And that everlasting is a powerful word, right? That's a time frame I can't comprehend, but I look forward to. And I think one of the things that just made me think a little bit to a, a personal skill that I've learned to remember to focus on light instead of darkness, because there's a lot, has been Doctrine and Covenants 636, when the Savior invites us to look unto me in every thought. Sometimes when I start to see darkness, all I have to remember is look at him. And I don't know how things are going to work out. I don't know how they're going to play out. But he is light and he is able to pull me, uh, even when I've sat in a lot of darkness, even if it's just lessening the darkness, it may not always be breaking it out. You know, mental illness can be really strong and darkness can be prevalent in your life. And simply thinking about Jesus and then all the things he can do and will do is so powerful. But I think that he's, he promises to be our everlasting light. And I just, I love that theme in just these couple of chapters that you can look for. Now, you get into chapter 61, and this first two verses is highly significant when it comes to the Savior's ministry um, from Luke's account in Luke chapter 4. So, Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes to the synagogue, and he opens the scroll to read, and he reads from this portion of Isaiah. And Here's what we have from Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me 
Messiah, Christ, to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. And of course, Jesus then, as he finishes reading this, everybody in the synagogue is looking at him, waiting for him to interpret what does this mean, and he says, today this is fulfilled in your ears. Well, the people didn't expect Jesus, this humble son of a carpenter, to be the fulfillment of the mighty words of Isaiah, and they essentially threw him out of the synagogue. They want to throw him over a cliff and kill him. Even here in the New Testament, some places people say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And the answer is yes. This goodness that Jesus came to liberate us from our physical and spiritual captivity. And I find this so empowering to listen to what God's mission is. When Jesus proclaims his mission, we can hear echoing across the ages from the words of Isaiah what, what Jesus' mission is for all of us. If you look at verse 3, there's a little phrase in here that some of you will, will recognize, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Notice once again this beautiful Hebrew symbolic poetry coming out, three examples of what God gives you to replace what the world has given you, or what our iniquity, or what the adversary, his rewards are. God overcomes that. I will give you beauty for ashes. Here in, in Utah County, we're all very familiar with the, the burning of the Provo Tabernacle, and here it is, this beautiful building that was just in ashes, in total ruins, and then President Thomas S. Monson gets up in a general conference and makes the, that announcement that, that those ashes were going to be turned into a temple of our God, which is this beautiful structure today as a, as a monument to this exact phrase in Scripture of what God can do with the building? Well, if, if human beings can do that to a burned building, what can God, the, the ruler of the universe, do with a soul that finds itself in ashes today? He's well able to do his own work to turn those ashes into a structure of beauty and magnificent glory, and then these other comparisons of the oil of joy and the garment of praise. This other theme that keeps coming up is the clothing, the garment, the, the covering of God versus the coverings of the world. Look at verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, my soul shall be joyful in, go in my God, there's that possessive pronoun again, my God. <laughs> Um, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. Brothers and sisters, the, the, the world is offering you all kinds of coverings, all kinds of clothing, but none of the world's clothing and textiles can clothe you with salvation. None of them. They're all a fake. Uh, God's clothing is the garment of salvation. 
He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. There's that phrase we had mentioned it before. Nephi picks up on that phrase and he's going to use it. I got it right here. Second Nephi chapter 4. This is part of Nephi's psalm, verses 33 and 34. O Lord, wilt thou encircle me around in the robe of thy righteousness? O Lord, wilt thou make a way for mine escape before mine enemies? Wilt thou make my path straight before me? And jumping ahead to 34, O Lord, I have trusted in thee, and I will trust in thee forever. I will not put my trust in the arm of flesh. For I know that cursed is he that putteth his trust in the arm of flesh. Yea, cursed is he that putteth his trust in man or maketh flesh his arm. So we can clothe ourselves with the things of this world. We can try to protect ourselves with all the world's solutions. And there are a lot of good and better solutions out there. But the ultimate best solution is letting God clothe us with his salvation. If I might, we'll talk about the trees of righteousness. It's a really interesting one. We know that Jesus is represented as a tree. We want to be like Jesus. We have these symbols or times in the scriptures where we're defined as trees. If you look back at Psalm chapter 1, you have like these opening statements, like the theme of Psalms, about people delighting in the law of the Lord, the law of Moses, or the Torah, the covenantal instructions where we show our faith and fidelity to God. Listen to Psalm 1 verse 3. So he that delights in the law of the Lord or in his covenantal instructions and the words of the prophets, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in the season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. I might point out that the word prosper is often tied into having God's spirit with you. And if you go back to sacrament, you promise to always remember God, which is to delight in his words and what he's offered us. And in so doing, you get the spirit to always be with you, which means you prosper. It's all tied together. Can I go back to me one thing? I I echo that 100%. We talked about the garment of righteousness. I don't see many times in the scriptures where we hear about the garment of praise. Our world is chock full of negativity. And um, God is a praiser. Right? He, in fact, one of my favorite things is how he introduces his son. Behold, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The first thing that he chooses, first thing he does, is called Joseph by name. Then he introduces him to the son. And the first thing he says about his son, he praises him. I think it's a pattern that we learn from God. He's the perfect model of all things, including parenting, grandparenting, uh, neighbors, all of that, the way that he treats people. And I think that this is a phrase, I see more heaviness in our world than I've ever seen. Uh, It goes back to the darkness too. So it's really interesting to me, what if next time somebody offered you their heaviness, you offered them praise? And as a savior would, including, yes, others, but what about yourself? Because how much negative self Uh, talk, deprecation also goes into our world. And if you were to ask God how he feels about you instead of all the assumptions that you make, and I realize there's been times in my life I have changed the nature of God to match my own self-loathing. And uh, and he's like, please, please don't do that. He is, offers the garment of praise and we need more praise and the world's going to get more negative and you and I get the opportunity to be praisers. Like Jesus Christ and Heavenly Father are praisers. So let's pick up another theme. 
that that comes up in a variety of ways. It's Isaiah will use the word old and he'll use the word new. <clears throat> so you get, for instance, uh, the old Jerusalem, and then there's going to be a new Jerusalem as we as we get ready to wind up these last few chapters of Isaiah. Watch for this theme to play out not just with the city of Jerusalem, but with your life, with the, the covenants that God has made, and with the promises. So notice as we jump into chapter 62, in verse 2 it says, and the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory, and thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. We're not going to create the name. It's not worldly invented. It's a name that Christ is going to give us. Isn't it fascinating that King Benjamin calls his people together, and one of the reasons he called them together is he tells them, I called you here because I wanted to give you a name, a new name whereby you can be made known. And through the course of his speech, <clears throat> we realize that the name that they're taking upon them is the name of Christ, and it's powerful for us who were all born into this world, we were all given a name uh, by our parents, but Christ is saying, I want you to be born again. I want you to experience a spiritual rebirth, and when you do, I'm going to be the father of that spiritual rebirth, and I'm going to give you a new name, and you see that coming through here. Look at verse 3, along with the name, thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. You're going to be these crown jewels of God. You're, you're precious. As Laurie was saying before, it, you're not worthless. You're not, you're not nothing. You're extremely valuable and precious to the Lord. And then look at verse 6, I have set watchmen upon thy walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace day nor night. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence. <clears throat> I love verse 6 because that is the role of prophets, leaders, parents, true friends today. The ultimate example of this being watchmen upon the walls or watchmen upon the towers are usually referring to those prophets, seers, and revelators. Thank heaven that we have prophets, seers, and revelators today, and that the Lord is speaking to them, and it's not their job to stand up on those towers and tell everybody, hey, keep up the good work, don't change anything, you're doing great, just status quo. That isn't what prophets have ever done in the history. They stand up on towers, they see from an elevated perspective, and they lift up their voice, they don't hold their peace, and they bear testimony of the Lord, and verse 7 says, give him no rest till he establish, until he make Jerusalem a praise for the earth. There are things that we need to change in order to come into line with what God would have us do. So we thank thee, O God, for a prophet to guide us in these latter days. So chapter 63 begins with <clears throat> some pretty powerful imagery regarding Christ's atonement as well as the Savior's second coming. So there are some interesting word plays going on. Remember that often uh, the, in the ancient Hebrew writing system, they would use word play as the special effects to make the, the reading more interesting and to help highlight key themes. 
And the theme here is red, as in blood red in the atonement of Jesus Christ. So here's words to listen for. Edom, which is related to the word red, and also look at um, dyed garments and so forth. And here we go. Who is this that cometh from Edom, the country of redness, with dyed garments from Bozrah, that this is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in, in righteousness, mighty to save. His atonement is mighty to save. Wherefore out the, art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? So in the ancient world, when they would create wine, they would gather all the grapes, they'd put it in a pit, and they would stomp on it. And you hear this phrase, that Jesus tread the wine press alone. It is a lot of work to stomp on grapes to get some wine. And when you do that, I've done this when I was a student at the Jerusalem program at BYU many years ago, you jump in there and they tell you wear clothes that you don't care about because they will be permanently stained with wine or grape juice. And it's a very messy, energetic, and uh, uh, energy depleting process. When God says, I tread the wine press alone. In the ancient world, it was meant to be a happy occasion because people like to drink things beyond water. And wine or grape juice was one of the few options they had. But it was a huge amount of work and people get together in a party and joyful atmosphere and they'd sing songs as they're all in this big vat all stomping together. Jesus worked out salvation for all of us. He feeds us the delicious wine or grape juice of his atonement. And he's the only one that made it possible. You have all these beautiful symbols of redness, that his garments are dashed red with the blood of the grape that he himself is represented by. So you see the phrase that Taylor already mentioned right there in verse 3, I have trodden the winepress alone. If you want to cross-reference that to Doctrine and Covenants section 76 verse 107 or section 88 verse 106, the Lord's going to repeat that phrase and then he adds a little uh, addendum to the end of the phrase when he's speaking to Joseph Smith in those two sections. He'll say, I've trodden the winepress alone, even the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Now we enter into a, 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 very, hmm, a very sacred realm in this part of the scripture because you'll notice there are some things coming out here in the second half of verse 3 that at first when we read Isaiah's words, it feels troubling to us. It doesn't seem to line up with our, our perception of the character of Christ. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 1, or sorry, verse 3, starting with the word, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, for their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments and I will stain all my raiment. It sounds strange to picture him on, on the cross or in Gethsemane with anger and, and fury and this vengeance kind of an idea. Verse 4, for the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And we're saying, wait, these two things don't seem to line up. The infinite atonement should be this loving, merciful, kind, and gracious thing, not this, not this fury. Look at verse 5, it goes even further. And I looked and there was none to help. And I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury, it upheld me. A thought that I learned from, from Sean Hopkin on this is the idea 
if you just shift your thinking and look at this verse from a, from a totally different angle, you say, hmm, the fury, the anger, what would that be aimed at? Is it aimed at you? Is it aimed at us? Or is it aimed at sin, at death, at hell, at the devil, at all of those who do uphold his work? It's as if he is engaged with our enemy and he's filled with that, that divine uh, vengeance to, to fight our battles for us. He, he is going to war for us and it upheld him. He is fighting for my soul and your soul, and it gets him through that, those untold agonies. It's just a different way to look at the, what at first might seem a little out of place, and then you put it in that context and you say, wow, he went to war for me. He fought to redeem our soul. Wow, how great thou art. Can I add one thought to that too? As you were talking about, um, there's a couple phrases in here that that tears my heart a little bit, actually. One of the things I love that you said is, in that moment he is with the vengeance, but I also went to Luke 20 or 42, 22, 42, and it says, and being in agony, maybe it was 43, he prayed more earnestly. And I thought of the pattern that when we feel like we're at war, or and he is, what he, what he calls upon Father's power beyond his own to be able to do this. Um, the other space that was, I, I don't know, so hard for me, verse 3, I trod in the wine press alone, and there was none with me. I looked in verse 5, and there was none to help. And it just has caused me to think when the Savior, I know what it means for me to grab for him. In that moment, he looks and I, I'm not saying I wasn't there to help, but it does cause me the question now, when he looks to do his work, to send somebody on his errand, am I there to help? And, uh, and it reminds me also in verse 3, with none was with him, of the Elder Holland, when Elder Holland spoke, and even as a message, right, where he's, it's titled, none were with him, and he testifies of the Savior's ability that he suffered such a long, lonely road so we don't have to. And without making this a long lesson in loneliness, I can testify that loneliness is no respecter of persons. And I have spent a lot of time pondering over sitting in loneliness and wondering where God is in my loneliness. But also knowing that I've never experienced loneliness like the Savior has. And as I read this, while it breaks my heart, it fills me with gratitude for a God who is always available in our loneliness. He lets us suffer. There's purpose in it. Uh, he actually helps us become like him in a really weird way, but it does. And I just testify that, um, and maybe because it leads to verse 7, 2, right? I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord hath bestowed upon us, and the great goodness towards the house of Israel, which he has bestowed upon them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. That's not one. That's not one time he's nice. There's multitudes. And I just love that attribute of him as well, that he is full of loving kindness. Whether we identify it as loving kindness or not, I'm grateful for a father who doesn't give me everything that I want. I really am. That's a good parent. And uh, I just love that that is, if we have eyes to see, we can see that he is full of loving kindnesses.
And notice using this parenting analogy, <clears throat> verse 8 says, for he said, surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their savior. It's beautiful, this identity. Oh, and by the way, verse 9, you can see some allusions to that angel that is mentioned as Lori already uh, took us to Luke 22, 43 and 44. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his, of his presence saved them. Jesus knows something about the presence of an angel in a moment of deep suffering because it seems to be one of the only things that he gets through the entire process of his infinite agonies of atonement where the Lord sends an angel. And by the way, you only get that angel mentioned in Luke's gospel. Ironic, Luke, the physician, is the only one to mention the, the comforting presence of an angel at a couple of points uh, or a few points there in that process. So to pick up a couple of, of additional concepts as we finish off these last three chapters, starting in 64, look at verse 4. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. Isaiah, that is, in my mind, that's the, the nicest way Isaiah has of saying to us, you're clueless. You have no idea how good it's going to be. There, it's this, I hath not seen nor hath ear heard what marvelous things, what great things the Lord hath in store for them that love him. It, it is so much better than anything we've ever imagined in this life. Hey, if I could just throw that really quick. Um, section 58, it's interesting the same concept is introduced to the saints in persecution in Missouri. And he says in there, right, um, verse 3, you cannot behold with your natural eyes for the present time the design of your God concerning those things which shall, that's promise language, shall come hereafter and the glory which shall follow much tribulation. For after much tribulation come with the blessings, wherefore the day cometh that ye shall be crowned with much glory. The hour is not yet, but is nigh at hand. Wonderful. And then to, to actually build on that beautifully, look at what Isaiah then takes us to down in verse 8. But now, O Lord, thou art our father. We are the clay, and thou art potter and we, will all, we are all the work of thy hand. It's that idea of a vessel in the hands of the Lord as he shapes us, as he molds us, and then as he fires us in the fires of affliction that actually solidify the work that he has done with us and make it, make it be able to withstand in all of the, the, the opposition and the temptations and the trials that are coming at us down the road so that we can be a vessel unto the Lord. Can I, can I give a two-second thought on agency there? President Irene gives a talk, uh, actually the Seminary Institute teachers, where he talks about wrestling with an issue with the Lord through the night mm -hmm. and, and literally prayed all night. And he said, I finally got to the point where I said, I only want what you want. Whatever you want is right. And, uh, and I have thought a lot about that space. It's a choice. God is not the potter that you have no choice in what you're, you're going to be molded into, right? Agency is huge. The choice that we make is, like the Savior, to say, not my will but thine be done. I don't know what that looks like. 
It's a scary path, which is why I need you to go before me and walk with me and be behind me. But I can testify of the power that comes when my prayers start to become like genuinely, I only want what you want. Love that. And, and verse 9 re-echoes that sentiment. Be not wroth, very sore, O Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech thee, we are all thy people. What an amazing thing when you can actually kneel down and say, Heavenly Father, instead of me giving you a long list of things I want thee to do for me today, just on occasion, what difference it might make to kneel down and say, Heavenly Father, give me the list of what thou would have me do for thee and for others today. Give me the laundry list instead of me always giving the laundry list to him. Pretty, pretty powerful. I can't imagine anything that brings him more joy than when we say that. Daddy, I just, I just want to be with you today. We pick up the theme again of the new and the old. Listen to this verse 17. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. So you think about the repentance process where God can create a new heart for us, and our desire for those past sins, those past habits, can be washed away. Where we have these long-term desires to be changed in God, and then we look forward with hope that in some future day, the pains and troubles of this world will no longer be with us. We don't remember them. We will only be in the everlasting present of God's presence. And that is something to look forward to. I also love in 65 verse 24, uh, this to me reveals the Savior's nature mm -hmm. and our Heavenly Father. Before they call, I will answer. <laughs> and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. Mm. And... Um, and I think that's just such a beautiful imagery. He's, a, he's already ahead of me. God lives in an eternal now. He's anticipating. He knows. So before, like, just how kind is that of him to just be willing? It's, a, it's, a, it's everlasting kindness. And he always hears. I love that. And, and it then leads us into this millennial promise. Verse 25, the wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock, dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord." Oh, I look forward to that day. You'll notice in, in Fourth Nephi, when they've achieved this kind of a, of a paradisiacal society, the one thing that uh, the Book of Mormon repeats more than any other is there is no contention among them. And it's not just among the people. He's using these analogies of animals to portray this period of peace all and nature, all, all peace. nature. There's no more fighting. All of the, the politicking and the arguing and the bickering and, the, and the, the disputes and the rumors of wars and the wars that we get involved in, all of that's done away. What a beautiful day to look forward to. And I want to say just one thing. I do think there's a someday aspect, and I also think there's an, a now aspect of what the peace the Savior offers. The, the closer we strive to live these principles now, the more our world changes to become these things. Because I think that things have less of effect on us that previously upset it. We can see that more as he sees it and put it in its place. One of my favorite things about the temple is it's just a reminder of the eternal perspective of like, calm down, Lori. And calm down. <laughs> Look at this. And then I'm like, I can, I can live some peace now. So I think Zion is a place that will come, 
But if we are all seeking Zion now, we establish it now and parts of it, because Zion is a, it's a state and it's not only a place, it's a people, it's also a heart. Mm -hmm. And the one thing I can do for me is seek with God to establish Zion in my heart. So Zion is a choice. Yeah. It's not simply we're waiting for God. We'll just sit here and wait for God just to fix everything, which he will. But for us to choose now to create Zion and to make a Zion situation for God to enhance. So now we turn to the final chapter in Isaiah. I'm sure some people out there are wishing there would have been 150 chapters of Isaiah, just like there are of Psalms. So sorry to disappoint you. We're now coming to the close of it Isaiah. Ends in 66. Notice the, the, some of the themes that are coming out here. In, in the first part uh, of 7, 8, and 9, he's referring to the birth process and he's saying, look, are you going to look at what I'm doing and say, verse 9, shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth? In other words, am I going to cause Israel to go through this long labor process but then not deliver? He's saying, no, I'm not going to do that. The labor process is painful. It's long. It's drawn out. You don't know when the second coming is going to come, just like a woman who's, who's ready to deliver doesn't know the exact day or the hour when she's going to go into labor. It's going to be painful, and the closer you get to the delivery, the more painful it becomes in some ways, but the promise is, I will cause to bring forth out of the womb. Verse 10, rejoice ye with Jerusalem and be glad with her. All ye that love her, rejoice for joy with her, all ye that mourn for her. It's this idea of, hold on, I know it's as you get closer to the millennium, it's that there are going to be terrible things happening, it's going to be painful. Hold on, because all that pain is going to be forgotten, and you're going to rejoice in the, in the deliverance. Verse 12, for thus saith the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. Um, I just, just quick, I will extend peace because I'm the Prince of Peace. And a river's moving. I have lots, lots of peace to extend. Constantly flowing supplies. And endless, yes. And I love how Isaiah concludes his record. If you look at verse 22, for as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. I want to recall, bring all our minds all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, where God plucks Abraham out of the masses of people and says these things, these promises which are for you, not just to Abraham, but as a child of Abraham, you have the same promises, and Isaiah is re renewing these promises in, in uh, chapter 66, verse 22. Here's what it says in Genesis 12, 2-3, And I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So this deeply important early covenant, these eternal promises that God made to Abraham of what God would do, this is what God's work is. It's repeated 
all the way later here in Isaiah, or so many chapters, so many pages later, I want you to see that these themes can continue to reverberate and repeat that God has a work to do, and it's to make our name great as we choose his name, and we will be preserved in his presence. And I, I would just simply add, kind of where we began in the spirit of, um, in this chapter, I tried to give you a couple of examples where we saw the Savior. It's just going to be an invitation. Um, President Nelson, when he invited the women to read the Book of Mormon a couple of years ago, one of the highlights he said in there was highlight every time you see the name of the Savior. Uh, 66, the Lord and, and other phrases are used often. Go back and highlight it and then ask yourself the question, what do I learn about him from this description? And I think that that's the power here. Um, these are his words intended to teach us about him so that we can become like him and that we know that he is in this relationship with us. And I just, I witness the power of the word of God to bring us to him, the master healer, the master physician. Um, and I just, I just testify, I love Isaiah and I know that he's brought me to my Jesus and my Redeemer. What a great way to end. We leave this with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you're loved. Thank you.